as I uh, alluded to at the start of the service, we are pressing on yet another week uh, talking about Easter. Uh, And the reason is because the tomb is still empty. Uh, You're not going to find anyone there. And uh, that has... To say that has abiding significance is the understatement of human history. That event in time and space in in history uh, has um, abiding effects and uh, to the degree that poets and lyricists have been able to grapple with that, uh, it has led to no few beautiful, beautiful, just soaring songs. Uh, over the history of, of the church. I want to read to you the words. Um, uh, maybe some of you may be familiar with this song. I am not. Uh, it, it looks like it's certainly worth our, our bringing into the canon at some point here at CPC. Uh, it's, it's written by a gentleman, Thomas Kelly. Uh, he wrote this back in 1809, I think it was. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. Listen to how Thomas Kelly... He was a pastor uh, in Ireland and uh, lived to be something like, oh, I think it was 86, uh, and um, served the Lord tirelessly and faithfully and was quite a prolific uh, hymn writer. This is one of his more well-known uh, pieces. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight return victorious, every knee to him shall bow. Crown him, crown him, crowns become the victor's brow. Crown the Savior, angels crown him. Rich the trophies Jesus brings. In the seat of power enthrone him while the vault of heaven rings. Crown him, crown him, crown the Savior, King of kings. Sinners in derision crowned him, mocking thus the Savior's claim. Saints and angels crowd around him, own his title, praise his name. Crown him, crown him, spread abroad the victor's frame. Hark those bursts of acclamation, hark those loud triumphant chords. Jesus takes the highest station, oh what joy the sight affords. Crown him, crown him, King of kings and Lord of lords. I could just keep reading from some of these lyrics um, from other cases, um, some even, uh, one example, two examples there from the 7th century, but um, I just want to say this, um, those are stirring words. Clearly, the, the poet's heart is, is, is stirred, and you get the sense that, that he is, is reaching, he finds human language hardly sufficient to express what he's coming to grapple with and recognize the significance of the resurrection. And yet, I fear that for many of us, the resurrection really doesn't hold the place in our minds and our hearts that it should. Uh, It's oftentimes, I I really think it goes more like this. The, the, The resurrection is basically eclipsed by the amount we talk about the crucifixion. It's, it's as though the empty tomb is just a grade B sequel to the cross. And that is not the emphasis of the Scripture. Not in any way at all. Now, now, now why would this be? How would this have come about? Well, perhaps it could be because of the... I want to be careful what I say here, but I'm just going to have to say it. The, the trappings that surround and in, can I put it this way, entomb Easter. 
a little too much focus. I'm not saying don't throw it out. That's not what I'm saying. Don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. But a little too much focus on the bunnies, the bonnets, and the baskets full of candy. I'm not saying don't do it. That's not what I said. I'm saying too much focus on those things, on the, on the trappings, and not enough focus on the change. The cosmic change that the resurrection of Jesus broke into this world. Something we really need to consider here. What is the, re- the abiding significance of the empty tomb? We're going to look at that for just a little bit here this morning, a little bit more here this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, you may be like, well, wait, that's not an Easter account. Why are we, stay with me. John chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, this is the fourth of the Gospels that we have. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, when we get to the end of the text, you'll see why this is very good for us to be looking at when it comes to this topic. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, hear God's word. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord, thank you. Thank you for preserving this record for us. Thank you for working through the Apostle John in his life. Uh, in a mysterious way, such that what we have here is no more and no less than what you wanted to be written. And so then we can stand upon it as sure and reliable and true. And at the same time, we have to pause and be still because we also need to stand under it as authoritative and from your very lips. Oh, would you please help us to hear. Clearly, there was a lot of confusion that day. Clearly, there was a lot of confusion in a lot of different ways that that day. Oh, would you give us clarity and understanding, deep, deep understanding, and where this needs to be moved, the areas, the areas that this in particular needs to be moved in our own individual lives as only you know, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would do that now. 
Amen. Ptolemy. Ptolemy was a second century astronomer and mathematician. He's a genius man. Uh, his studies and the systems and the ideas that he put forward uh, were deeply respected and held to uh, for some 14 centuries. Ptolemy is mostly known for the, uh, what was referred to at the time as the Ptolemaic system. And, and the idea was that as you looked up into the heavens at night, he came up with a, his understanding as to how those strange, what those strange lights were and how you could predict something of their movements. And the Ptolemaic system went something like this. The earth is at the center of the universe. And the sun and the moon and the planets and everything else rotates around the earth. No one had ever come up with anything like this. Such a comprehensive system as for uh, the, the, the objects, the movement of the objects, and the way to predict that kind of thing. No one had ever come up with anything like this. It was ingenious. It was so far-reaching. And if you paid attention to what I just said, it was wrong. About 1,400 years later comes a guy by the name of Nicholas Copernicus, who in his studies of those heavenly lights began to realize and prove that Ptolemy, however brilliant he was in so many other areas, was just absolutely wrong. It's actually the sun at the center of what needs now to be called the solar system the sun at the center around which the earth rotates and the sun and the moon and all the other planets ultimately are in orbit around this sun. Now, that was quite a change, quite a change in people's understanding as to how things worked. It's because of that people oftentimes refer to, it's even a catchphrase of, of, of other things, a Copernican revolution. You know, this huge paradigm shift that takes place in one's understanding. You can, it's, uh, that's almost another way of referring to that. A Copernican revolution. Easter is the Copernican revolution times a, a myriad, a gazillion, if you were in our Sunday school class uh, last hour. Uh, it is the revolution of revolutions. It is the reorientation of reorientations in, in terms of our understanding. Now, if you're there that first Sunday, that, that, that Easter morning, and you, you're, you're, you're a bystander, you're hiding off somewhere in the garden and nobody sees you, and you see these things unfolding, there's some pretty obvious implications. This, I'll just say some low-hanging fruit, it's, or another way of saying a metaphor, but it's right on the ground. You, you just can't miss some of the implications of what's happened here uh, that first Easter morning. Things along the lines of, oh, I guess there is a spiritual reality. There is a God, and we can see something of what He's like. Uh, perhaps even in this life, there's the hope and the possibility of meaning and purpose and joy. That's just the low-hanging fruit. That's just the stuff that's just lying there on the ground, if we'll just pay attention to it. This passage takes us to some deeper things that are just as evident and, and, and just as true. This, this text takes us and helps us to understand that truly there, there is a resurrection reorientation, a Copernican revolution in terms of our understanding of everything. 
of everything. The, the resurrection, if you just put it this way, the resurrection of Jesus reorients the most essential things. The most essential things. And John points this out in, in the way he recounts this and just puts it forward to us in, in three things regarding the temple that you see here in this text. The first thing regarding the temple that John points out has to do with the, the cleaning of the temple or the clearing of the temple, either way. The second thing has to do with the raising of the temple. And the third thing has to do with the coming of the temple. Those three, vital, and they are paradigm-shifting. It's the Copernican revolution of Copernican revolutions, the, the ultimate reorientation of our understanding of everything, of everything, absolutely everything. Let's look at these three in turn. First, the cleansing of the temple. Here we get at the question of authority. The question of authority. Is there any bedrock to it at all? Is there any bedrock to truth and who, who speaks it? Where do you find it? Let's look again, verses 13 to 17. The Passover of the Jews was at, the, it was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. What in, what's going on here? What's going on here? Uh, clearly, Jesus is angry. He's enraged. This is not a temper tantrum. This is the holy, just fury of the Son of God. It might behoove us to ask, why is he angry? Right? It might be really good to kind of drill down into that for just a minute. The cause of his anger. We should, should say that it was a needed service, what was going on there in the temple precincts. A needed service. If you're coming there to the festivals there in the temple, and you're a pilgrim traveling from who knows where and who knows how far, and you need to sacrifice an animal there in the temple, you can't just bring one with you. You've got to buy one. Giving uh, the, the, the alms and giving um, the offerings, the monetary offerings, the currency had to be exchanged. And that had to take place someplace, somehow. So it's not the what is going on that's so upsetting to Jesus, it's the where it's going on. The where it's going on is what's referred to as the court of the Gentiles. It's the one area in the entire temple precinct that non-Jews could come and worship the one true God. And they're being forced into a position because of what's going on at the time of basically trying to pray and to meditate and to worship the Lord in a zoo, in a mall, in, a, in, a, in an auction house. It can't be done. And this is deeply offensive to Jesus. And so he acts. And oh, does he act. 
And it's worth then thinking about then, okay, so he's really asserting himself here. What do we learn in that, in the way that he asserts himself here? What do we learn about who he is in this? We learn a, a whole lot about his claim of ownership. Uh, he's, he says very clearly he's speaking and acting on behalf of his father. So you have here a claim of ownership. You have here a claim of authority. But behind this, he's saying, I have the right to do this. And what his essence he's saying is, my temple, my people, my city, my temple. I have the right to speak and act as I am, as no other does. So in the cleansing of the temple, we see Jesus doing is claiming a right, a right that no one else has, and it gets us to this question of authority and this question of truth and who ultimately has the right to speak and who ultimately do we need to listen to. So, so think with me just for a second. Here's an analogy and an illustration. You're at home hanging out one evening in your house, your apartment, whatever it is, and someone comes in and they start moving furniture around, taking pictures down, moving them over here, stripping wallpaper, doing some paint, ripping up floorboards, maybe knocking down a wall or two. Who gets to do that? Who gets to do that? The owner or the guest? Now, some guests that you've had in your home probably would do that. But who, who rightfully, rationally gets to do that? The owner or the guest? The owner. The guest to do anything has to ask permission. The owner just sees what needs to be done and goes to about doing it. It's their house. It's their place. They call the shots. Jesus is the owner of the house. Jesus is the owner of your life. That's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's part of what it means to profess yourself to be a Christian is to recognize that Jesus in all things has the ultimate say. Not you, not me. Him. As one old hymn writer put it, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. Not some. Not a fair bit. All. This gets us to the question of authority. The cleansing and clearing of the temple. And we're about to get into this as to how this connects to the resurrection, but it very clearly does. Jesus, with his resurrection, shows he has the authority to speak in these ways, to act in these ways. And that resurrection reorients our understanding of everything, including authority, his, his. Let's go to the second point. The raising of the temple, moving from the cleansing of the temple to the raising of the temple, moving from his, uh, the questions of authority to questions of ability. Okay, how far can your claims go? Is it all talk? You talk big, O clearer of the temple. What can you do? Why should I listen to you? 
being a little crass, but I'm just pressing it, just a little, just kind of pushing it right into this. Uh, let's, uh, let's pick up where we left off, verses 18 to 22. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So, again, we're, we're talking not so much here about authority, but ability. Who is this? Uh, clearly, the, the, the leaders there at the temple, the Jewish leaders, are filled with confusion and consternation as to what has happened, and, and this strange rabbi from Galilee and what he has, has done. And so they demand a sign. Of course they do. You would too. Any of us would. They demand a sign. I mean, I mean in essence, so just think about the scene, right? So this is the temple precincts. One minute, it's just as everyone's expecting and as has been normal the day before and the day before and the day before. It's what everyone's used to. And now you've got animals running everywhere. Tables overturned, money all over the ground. The crowds are just completely astounded, and there's just to say there's unrest. Well, yeah. And so, of course, they demand a sign. Who do you think you are? What right do you have? to do and say the things that you have done and said. We demand a sign. We demand proof that you have any right, any claim to do this. Jesus says, okay, I'll give you a sign. And now they're even more confused. Because, of course, when he says something about raising a temple, well, first off, they have no conception this is a whole other topic. But they, they have no conception of what Jesus means when He speaks of resurrection. They have no categories for that. And they certainly, when He says temple, well, where are they standing? They're standing in the temple precincts. If you just look over to the north from where they were, there's this huge building where all the sacrifices are taking place. This is Herod's temple, a wonder of the ancient world. It was an architectural construction marvel to behold. Just beautiful, immense, so stately, amazing. So, of course, that's assuming what he's talking about. And it's still not finished. They've been working on it for over 40 years. They, it wasn't completed till years after that, and I think I read one scholar said at the time that they actually completed it, it was something like 15 or 16,000 workers were then let off the job. It's quite a building project. So they can't understand what in the world is, is Jesus getting at. Well, John makes it very clear that what he, exactly what it is that he's getting at and in doing so, what we, we see just some, simply this. Jesus' ability to foresee and foretell, predict, and know exactly to the nth degree what is coming. Because, of course, it's been planned before the beginning of time. 
that he knows exactly what's coming, and he can tell them, and he is. He is. But it's more than that. It's not just his ability to see and foretell, but it's also it's in, in his rule over events in that sense. But just let's just say it, his rule over death, his rule over life and death. He, he says, he makes it very clear to, to, when he's speaking to, um, to Martha, Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and the life. As we read in uh, John chapter 10, just prior to that in John 11, in John 10, we read these words, verses 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And earlier in that, in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus lays, he doesn't just die. He lays down his life and then three days later raises it up in ways that no one else could. He is the Lord of her life and death. In the raising of the temple, in that sense, he shows, he demonstrates infinite, boundless power. Now, some of us here, no doubt, needed to hear the application for the first point, depending on what's going on in your life. Jesus' authority over every aspect of your life. Some of you need to really be reminded of that today. But there are others of us that need to be reminded of this, his ability over every area of life. He is Lord. He is Lord in that sense as well. There is absolutely nothing that is beyond His reach, not even the one thing that you and I will never be able to stop, death. He holds the keys to that. My friends, that is tremendously comforting and tremendously encouraging when you consider that that's the one we follow. This is the one who we look to and lean upon and rely upon and go to. This is not just some other sage. This is the God of the universe. changes everything, if you'll let it. It can utterly disrupt. It can change you from a Ptolemy way of looking at things to a Copernicus way of looking at things. Reorients the most essential things, the resurrection. Third point, I need to go drill down into this. Not just uh, the cleansing of the temple and the raising of the temple, but the coming of the temple. And you may be thinking, well, wait, wait, I thought it was a building. I thought it was you know, a really intense, immense uh, complex of stone. It, well, yeah, but no. Um, here we get not just at issues and the questions of Jesus' authority and ability, but here we move into more of a, the relational component and intimacy. And intimacy. I'm going to read verses 18, picking up there again. 18 and following again. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? 
Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and when you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So what does Jesus mean? What is he getting at? And what is the significance of that for us? To get at that, we need to tell the glorious old story of the temple. And the story of the presence of God with His people. We need to go all the way back to the garden. There in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, Adam and Eve are able to enjoy free, unfettered, unencumbered relationship and, and the, the living presence of God. It's really hard for us to get our minds around this. But that's what you see in Genesis 2. Genesis 3 comes the fall, the rebellion. And with that, they are banished from the garden, and the way back to God's presence is blocked. Years later, the time of the Exodus, God leading His people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, they make their way to the foot of Mount Sinai, and there they encounter the unfiltered presence of God. And it was absolutely terrifying. The, the way Moses describes it, it sounds like something like a tsunami, an earthquake, a volcano, a tornado, and, and, and worse. The ground is shaking. The wind is howling. There's darkness. They plead with Moses, make it stop. God has come near can't handle it. But God in His mercy and His grace says, I will still go with you. I will move with you in your journey through the wilderness, the tabernacle, a place where you can draw near, and I will be with you. And it continues on like that for some number of years until David, the time of David. David's great desire is that a temple would be built Finally, with the establishment of his, his kingdom and the capital city there in Jerusalem, a temple would be built where God could dwell permanently with his, his people. Solomon's the one to carry that out. But sadly, years later, that temple, the, 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 the land is invaded, the temple, the city is destroyed, the people are sent off into exile. But the prophets say, the prophets say, there's another temple, a better temple. And a better David is going to build it. Mm. Okay, along comes Jesus. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 14. I'm going to give you a little Greek lesson here, folks. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word, dwelt, in the English is the translation, I just put it literally this way. God set up His tent. He tabernacled with us. That's what it means. That's what it means. So, what you have here is, for centuries up to that point, God had dwelt with His people in the tabernacle, in the temple. And now Jesus come in the flesh, is God in the flesh, 
is the temple of temples, the dwelling of God with his people. Finally, finally, it's, it's, just, it's just absolutely stunning to consider. So this is, this is the, the fulfillment of his intentions from the start, from the very beginning. The temple would pass away. It was never intended to be the end game, the, the, the destination point, a, a place, a physical building in a physical place. There in Jerusalem, that was but meant to point towards something greater and grander. God's true dwelling with His people. Jesus as the temple. Jesus as the temple of temples. The temple to end all temples. Keep, stay with, uh, keep your thumb there in, in uh, John 2. Turn with me to Revelation 21. You see this fulfilled in a climactic way as, as John, the writer of Revelation, uh, speaks of and brings this imagery in, to bear yet again. Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23, we read, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. We're going back just to verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And that, by the way, dwelling place is tabernacle again. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. You see, with the resurrection, with Jesus' death and resurrection, the temple has come. The temple has come. The fulfillment of all the promises, everything, all the strands, all the themes, everything about the temple. And oh my goodness, if you could put yourself back in the sandals of those people and the immensity of the significance of what the temple was, and even all of that, all that freight behind that is nothing compared to Jesus as the fulfillment of all of that. The hopes and fears of all the years. I mean, think, think with me here for a minute. The very, the living presence of God that caused such terror and panic at the foot of Mount Sinai is there in Jesus. What we read from 1 Kings 8, right, a little while ago, at, at the dedication of the temple in Sol Solomon's reign, and the cloud, the cloud of glory comes in there such that the, the priests, they, they can't stand that's what the text tells us. They can't stand. They're thrown to the ground. That presence we have in Jesus. That presence we have with Jesus. So you see some of the implications here? What does being a Christian mean? I guess it doesn't mean being nice and following a bunch of rules. I guess maybe it might mean a little bit. In fact, it doesn't mean that at all. I was going to say it means more. No, it just take that off the page. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It doesn't have anything to do with that at all. It means living in the Lord's abiding presence by His amazing grace. It means living in the Lord's abiding presence by His amazing grace. Jesus is the last temple. He is the last sacrifice. You know what that means? It means that ultimately, 
our relationship with Him has nothing to do with our merits and accomplishments for Him, but everything to do with His merit and accomplishments for us. That's what that means. Now, think of what that could do to your gratitude and devotion to Him, to the degree that that's settling in. What would that do to your gratitude and devotion to Him? Your sense of security and humility before Him. Your glad obedience and deep-rooted joy. The resurrection changes everything, absolutely everything. The, the, the folks there that day had no categories for this, right? They didn't know what, they didn't have a bucket to put it in. The implications of what he was saying were so good and so grand that they, they simply did not know what to do with it. It reminds me of some of the old science fiction um, shows and um, films from like the 50s and 60s, and, and you'd have uh, a robot or a talking computer, and some person in, in the story would, would be trying to convey something to the robot or the computer, and, and, and this machine had, had, didn't know what to do with it, and, and they, it's, it's, they're just completely flummoxed. And so it was always come back this way, does not compute, does not compute. Does not compute. See smoke coming from the back of the, the machine, right? That's like us. It really is like us. This is so huge, so good, and so grand. We don't have categories for this. This, this defies our imagination. This utterly disrupts the horizon of our expectations. The resurrection just, just utterly reorients the most essential things. Jesus is now our temple. He is God. He is our way to God. And the only way to God. And the way is clear to God wide open. He is God. He is our way to God. He is the only way to God, and the way is clear to God. Think with me. Um, we really rely on these little gadgets here, and they're very sophisticated. In olden days, say like 15 years ago, um, you had two choices. You, you could have a, a thing, Garmin would make them, these, you know, these things you would, you would, electronic gizmos, you'd plug into a computer to update the maps and then assuming you subscribed like you wanted to pay the money for the subscription, which nobody did. And you, you'd plug that into the cigarette lighter and off, off you'd go. Or you did it the really old-fashioned way and it was a map. Now, how many of you relied, though, on, on the Garmin or whatever that thing was that you had plugged into your car? And how many times did it get you lost? 
Yeah, I remember a presbytery meeting in downtown Chicago. I still don't know where I went to. I still don't know. I, I'm surprised I'm not still there. Um, we, we need a powerful software update. We need a reorientation. It, it's, it's worse than just an update. It, it's, like, it's really more like the, the whole system's crashed. Or say there's a virus, and I don't mean the virus in mass. I mean the virus in computer software crashing, and it just needs to be rebuilt from the ground up. Our internal GPS is just utterly whacked, and it will never get us where we're longing to go. There's only one hope we have, and it's the message of the resurrection. The empty tomb good king who has come and is coming again, who has made it very clear his authority over us and um, his ability to move in every way that needs to be moved, and his intimacy moving into our lives. And he walks with his mouth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. This is really hard for us to get our minds around, that everything that the temple was and more, in years gone by, you, Jesus, are. And where things were, how things were, for our first parents there in the garden, when there was no need for a temple, no need for sacrifices and priests and altars and such, because there they had you. That's where we're heading. The greatest longings of our hearts met in you. We ask that you'd help us to be a people of hope, to live in this reality, the reality of the resurrection. Oh, Jesus, would you do your reorienting work? Because we all need it. We're a bunch of Ptolemies this morning. Our orbits are really messed up. The way we chart and think and act and live really needs some adjustments. So would you do that Copernican revolution in our hearts? Would you begin it now? Amen.